imagine this. It's a nice day out, so you decide to go on a hike around like this really dense forest close to where you live. You usually do that, so it's totally fine. But today you're feeling particularly adventurous, so you decide to go off trail and enter the woods. Everything is going fine and dandy, but 10 minutes in, you're face to face with a six foot bear staring right at you from meters away. Frozen in fright, what is your next move gonna be? Are you gonna become a boxer and fight the bear? Or make a quick escape? Or something different entirely? So, today let's talk about the science of being scared and what would you do? I'm Tanishori Rajendran and welcome back to On the Sidelines. Joining us on the sidelines today to talk about the science of being scared is June Kim, a medical science major, one of my fellow co-hosts, and a science for everyone researcher. Thank you so much for joining us today. And thanks for having me. It's uh, it's always fun to be on this side of the mic. I really like. I it, know we always <laughs> hear you as like the host, so I'm so glad today we can have a conversation between two hosts. But you're yeah, our guest today. Awesome. So let's get right into it. So why do we get scared? Like what goes on in our brain to trigger being scared or the nervous system in general? Yeah, of course. So I'll start a little bit more biologically and then I'll go a little bit more socially, how we're trained to be scared. So being scared is our biological response for survival. The reason why we're scared is because something might be threatening us and we would like to live. That's the very simple way to look at it. So when we look at parts of the brain, there's a part called the amygdala, and that's our emotion center. And it registers fear and prompts the release or hormones. So one such hormone is adrenaline Mm -hmm. uh, that you may or may not have heard of. And that one is the thing that activates what we call the sympathetic nervous system. Okay. And with that, the SNS or the sympathetic nervous system gets us ready to respond to a threat. And it does things like increase our heart rates, you know, pump more blood. If we need to run away, then we have like the strength that we need to run away. It also even actually it widens our pupils so that we can like see more and absorb more light. It's, it's crazy what it can do. And the last step in this process is just the hippocampus, which is the memory part of our brain. And that kind of just looks through our experiences to evaluate if like the threat is actually real or not. Oh my god, it sounds like you get superpowers for like the five minutes that you start yeah. being scared. <laughs> it, it's a small little energy boost and uh, hopefully it's enough to get you out of the situation you're in. So that's kind of what happens biologically. Mm-hmm. But, you know, one big question is like, we're not actually scared of things that only could threaten our well-being, right? There's people who are just scared of, you know, more monthly. I know there are spiders that could be definitely deadly, but there are also spiders that are not deadly, but we're still scared of them. So why are we scared of things that are life-threatening? And that part is a little bit more of socialization because Mm -hmm. fear is actually also learned. There's a really weird causal loop when it comes to like learned fears. uh, And this is really interesting to me. Uh, Apparently the reason why so many people have a fear of spiders is because a fear of spiders is common in the first place. So If we know someone in our life who is very afraid of spiders, let's say our parents, then we are more likely to mimic those fears because every time they see a spider, they scream. So we think the appropriate response when when we're very young is to also be afraid of the spider. Oh my God. I get that so much because like I know so many of like my family members who are afraid of cockroaches. And the moment you see one, it's like just terror, but they don't do anything. 
Yeah, exactly. I actually have the opposite thing. My parents are not afraid of spiders at all. And oh it just so God. happens that I'm not either. And I know these are both very like anecdotal, like they're just one, like examples of two people, but it is an yeah. indicator that like fear is definitely socialized. We definitely intake what our parents or, you know, close friends uh, kind of actions are, and then we output something similar. So very interesting. Oh my god, that is so cool. Seeing how like your brain works just from like an image and like it being a learned behavior. Exactly. So what is a fear response? And I know like we talked about what goes on in the brain, but like what is fear? What is considered a fear response? Right. So when I talked about the sympathetic nervous system before, and we actually also call this our fight or flight response. And basically what that means is those are the ways we could respond. Uh, but over the years, researchers have added a lot more nuance because they realize that, you know, when you are faced with something that's scary, fighting or fl like flights, which is like running away, are not the only responses. So there's actually five responses in like literature right now. There may be more. And they are called fight, flight, fawn, freeze, and flop. Oh so there's, there's, there's a couple in there. <laughs> so I'll, I'll try and simplify this by using an example. Let's, let's use the example of encountering a bear in the forest. Let's say awesome. that's what Sounds we good. face. Yeah. So the fight response is very simple. You fight the thing that is causing your fear. You attack the bear. I uh, don't know how well that'll work, but that <laughs> yeah. is what that would mean. Uh, flight is running away from the bear. Mm -hmm. And now we get to the three that are probably not well, as well known. So fawn is when you try to appease or reason with the threat. Oh so with gosh. a human, that could be like pleading. But with an mm -hmm. animal, it could be like offering treats or food to try and like calm down the threat. Uh, but fawn doesn't really apply when the threat is like not sentient, I suppose. You can't really appease or reason like, I don't know, a cliff <laughs> that you're, if you're afraid of heights. The freeze response is when you just completely freeze up, just you are not able to act. Uh, you're still like conscious, you're able to, you know, see and understand everything, but you just are <laughs> unable to respond. And then flop, the last one is just the extreme version of that. You lose consciousness. So passing out, for example, it would be a flop response. Honestly, I, like I can see each one of them being applied to like different scenarios. Right. And I can think of what I would do. <laughs> It is tough. It is tough. And actually, when it comes to deciding between the few, it's not always the same. And mm -hmm. it's you have a small moment where you're able to really decide what's going to happen, obviously, depending on what the threat is, depending on how, how severe it is. But one thing that is interesting is if you faced an experience before, if you face again, so maybe this is the second time you run into a bear or something like that, uh, you're more likely to do the exact same action that you did last time if it was successful. Uh, so it's taking mental shortcuts and making sure that, you know, you're, you can maximize your chances of survival. But otherwise, you know, we do have a small period where we just try and like think about what we're going to do. And yeah. so it's very inconsistent. It's not like you're always going to flop. It's not like you're always going to fight. stuff. Like that. I guess it depends on the moment, really. Yes, absolutely. What you're going to do. So now talking about like fear responses, what it is and what it does to the brain and I know sometimes fear is learned, but sometimes it can be disorders as well that stem from fear. Because I know there's a ridiculous amount of phobias out there. Yes, yes, there are. Yeah, there's truly probably a phobia for every single thing. If you like search up a list on Google, they have a phobia for 
I don't know. They, they do have a phobia for quite literally everything. But what's interesting about phobias specifically is that they should be distinguished from fears. Like now all fears are very valid, but phobias are not the same thing as being afraid of something. Like most people like just on a common conversation, they'll be like, oh, I have, I have a huge phobia of something. Uh, yeah. It may be true, but I'll, I'll share a fun statistic. The average person is afraid of heights that, you know, you don't want to fall along different uh, distance. But the actual fear, phobia of heights is called acrophobia. And interestingly, only three to six percent of the population has acrophobia, which is a lot less than I would have expected. Huh. Uh, so, yeah, I would say more people like tons of people probably are afraid of heights. But the specific phobia for heights, uh, only three to six percent. And to distinguish what those mean, uh, basically, a phobia is when you have uh, a symptom like, like a fear response symptom, but to an extreme. So a regular fear is when you get your heart rate going, it increases your sympathetic nervous system, like I said before. But a phobia is when those symptoms start absolutely interfering with your ability to do anything else. So things like feeling nauseous, uh, vomiting, <laughs> fainting, shortness oh, of breath, geez. chest pain, dizziness. Like when this, these symptoms go to an extreme where you are unable to even choose between those options, yeah. uh, that's usually what we call a phobia as opposed to a fear. So another thing, that I wanted to chat about with you is PTSD, which mm -hmm. is, from what I hear, a fear-related disorder, but I could mm -hmm. be wrong. No, absolutely. So PTSD is a fear-related disorder, and it stands for post-traumatic stress disorder. And even something like generalized anxiety disorder, I know it says anxiety in the name, but one of the, the things that comes with generalized anxiety disorder is actually an increased sensitivity to fear. So you could kind of think of it as a fear-related disorder because it does affect your perception of fear or how likely you're uh, likely to be afraid of something or a stimulus. And when it comes to these kinds of disorders, they aren't like fully explained. There's no formula to like, yep, this is exactly how you get A, B, and C. But the largest contribution is traumatic events or occurrences and lived experiences. Traumatic events could be anything. Uh, and as long as it has a long-lasting impression or it is something that is embedded within your memory and you associate it with a lot of fear, uh, that's how these kinds of disorders could be uh, developed. And the issue from there is basically you have a very, very heightened sensitivity to that occurrence happening again. So when you look at PTSD, for example, if you have a lot of trauma related to a car accident, even a car honk could really, really increase that fear response. And that's all it takes. So, you know, it's just an increased sensitivity to similar stimuli. I know, like, whenever you're in a frightful situation, obviously you're having, like, a higher adrenaline and, like, you're in a truly terrifying situation that you want to get out as quickly as possible. But somehow we still seek fear out. Like, we still go to haunted houses we still watch scary movies and go on roller coasters why do we seek fear yeah so this is a really awesome question so the way to explain it is if we feel at least partially in control we get the best of both worlds that's one way to look at it so we get the adre adrenaline rush uh, and that gives us a lot of excitement and that's the excitement of being scared but then we also have the immediate reassurance that the fear stimulus so like the haunted house or whatever is not actually a genuine threat. So we are able to be excited, have that fear <laughs> response, you know, really just be on the edge of our seats, but then immediately be able to tell ourselves, actually, we're safe, is we're going to be okay. Uh, and therefore, you know, I was able to enjoy that experience. But 
imagine if you went up the roller coaster and mm-hmm. you know because you like to see fear you like the adrenaline rush yeah uh, and it just got stuck at the top oh that would God. not be that fun anymore that would be so because terrifying. you don't get the second part yeah exactly you don't get the second part you don't have the reassurance that you're safe anymore so yeah it requires both parts that's the reason why we seek fear because we still get the excitement and the enjoyment however we also get the reassurance without that second part we're just straight up scared what is the enjoyment part that we're seeking in this is it just like the adrenaline rush that we're looking for is it like something else that goes on in the brain right so the adrenaline rush is actually that something that acts as a de-stressor and even like a distractor from other worries that you might have and specifically when it comes to adrenaline there are actually genetic differences they did they did a test on people who are adrenaline junkies or so-called adrenaline junkies, people who really love to do things like skydiving uh, and cliff jumping, uh, bungee jumping, stuff like that. And it seems that they actually have a different kind kind of risk-taking gene. That's how they described it. So there's actually a genetic basis for people who want more adrenaline compared to others. That also means there's a, a genetic basis for people who do not want adrenaline more than others, meaning that you know people respond very differently. But the, the reason why we love that adrenaline rush in the first place is that it just gets our entire body active, our entire body um, very, very on edge, I suppose. And it yes, it res- like gets us ready to respond to things. That's what the main purpose is for. But it also gets us into a heightened state of mind, which is something that a lot of people enjoy. Yeah, no, I would go on a roller coaster any day because I just like that rush, even though I'm like holding on to the bar really tightly, but a slide like count me out. No, I have no control in that situation. Yeah, exactly. And that's the thing. The best thing we can do is be very cognizant because like we might love the thrill of the roller coaster, but our friends might not. We might love the scary movie but our friends might not. And the reason is like, I, there is a genetic component, component, literally there's the social component, right? You don't know what someone's lived experiences might be. And because of all of these things, people respond to fear very differently. So the best thing we can do is just be conscientious, open-minded. We all experience fear differently, uh, but you know, still have fun with it where we can. Thank you so much for coming on today and talking to us about the signs of being scared and the wonderful options we have, even though I'm sure there's more, but the common theme. Yes. Thanks so much for having me. It was really fun. Amazing. And thank you again for tuning in. And remember to subscribe for more conversations and some insightful answers to your questions about the science impacting your world. If you want to learn more about being scared, the nervous system, or any of the other topics we talked about on this show, visit us on Instagram or TikTok at sci for everyone and on our website at www.scienceforeveryone.ca. On the Sidelines is a podcast by Science for Everyone. It's produced by Sam Marchetti, June Kim, and Tanishuri Rajendran. On the Sidelines is sponsored by the University of Toronto Student Engagement Grant.